From the John Wyatt Memorial Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and thehardballtimes.com, this is Stealing Home. I'm David Temple. Baseball is, first and foremost, entertainment. We tune in or go to the park to watch skilled individuals compete against each other for our own enjoyment. You can bring rivalries and pennant chases and all the narratives you desire, but deep down, we watch because watching makes us happy. And just like any other entertainment industry, there's a business side, an ugly side, a world of contract negotiations and service time considerations. Salary dumps and draft slots, international signing pools, TV contracts, revenue sharing. It's fascinating in its own right, but this world seems so contradictory to the pastoral game that we watch. It's a seedy underbelly, but it's the underbelly that keeps the whole thing going. A necessary evil. As Harry Wright said way back when he formed the first professional team in Cincinnati, baseball is business now. And business spurs other business. Baseball wasn't involved in the invention or even the rise in popularity of beer. But as soon as the American Association came into being in 1882, beer and baseball became linked. At the time, the only name in the game was the National League. Fans of the NL saw themselves as gentlemen and behaved that way. There was chatter and cheering, to be certain, but it was all done in a reserved kind of way. In a word, seeing a game live was a little, well, dull. The American Association was developed to rival the snootier National League in an attempt to appeal to a more blue-collar crowd. Tickets were cheaper. The atmosphere was more congenial, and parks were permitted to sell alcohol to spectators. Dubbed the Beer and Whiskey League, the American Association lasted only nine years, but its existence brought in change to baseball. When the American Association disbanded, it left baseball with the idea that beer should be sold in parks. It also left a few teams that ended up being folded into the National League, including the Baltimore Orioles, the Washington Senators, and the St. Louis Cardinals. Almost 60 years later, those same Cardinals were in trouble. The team was struggling financially. The club's owner, Fred Seig, was facing prison time for tax evasion. Fans of the club were worried that outside parties would vulture the team and move it to another city. That is, until August Gussie Anheuser-Busch Jr. stepped in. See, Gussie's family was a prominent one in the St. Louis area thanks to their Budweiser brewery. Where Cardinals fans saw dread, Gussie saw opportunity. He was in the beer business, after all, and a marriage of the Cardinals and Budweiser would be a boon to his brewery's profits. So in 1953, he saved the Cardinals from contraction or relocation, by buying the franchise for $3.75 million. That's equivalent to about $33 million today, or about what Josh Hamilton's salary will be in 2016. 
And as Gussie worked to rebuild the struggling franchise, it became clear that something else needed a little rebuilding. The Cardinals' home, the dilapidated Sportsman's Park. A complete overhaul of the stadium began. Gussie figured that, since he was funding all these improvements, he should be allowed to rename the park. Always a businessman, his initial proposal was to give it the name Budweiser Stadium. However, Commissioner Ford Frick soured on the idea of naming a ballpark after a commercial enterprise. Gussie countered by requesting to rename the park after his family. The commissioner acquiesced, and Sportsman's Park would afterward be known as Bush Stadium. Shortly thereafter, the Budweiser Brewery began selling a new product, Bush Beer. Ice fishermen and college partygoers everywhere have Gussie Bush, Ford Frick, and even the American Association to thank for their beloved Bush beer. Well, at least until they wake up the next morning. If you've ever walked a golf course or recreational soccer field, you've probably stepped on Tiffway 419 Bermuda grass. It's been a standard for outdoor playing surfaces for decades. And in 1965, groundskeepers in Houston thought that their specialized version of Tiffway 419 would be able to grow. It was actually a tough task. The grass was set to grow within the confines of the newly built Astrodome, indoors. To make sure the grass had enough sunlight, special lucite panels were installed on the roof of the Astrodome. And for a while, it worked. That is, until the Texas sun shifted enough to shine brightly through the panels. See, the grass wasn't the only thing in the outfield. There were also, you know, players. And the players quickly became annoyed with the glare these panels were giving off. To track down fly balls, one needs to be able to see, it seems. The panels also created a miniature greenhouse effect, sometimes causing light rain showers inside the dome stadium, which brought on delays as ground crew members worked to clean up the playing surface. So the panels were nixed, and the grass began to die. And much of the 1965 season in the Astrodome was played on dirt that was spray-painted green. The solution to the whole problem would become a bane on baseball. A new artificial grass called chemgrass was installed in the Astrodome. The profile of the turf's biggest client prompted a name change, and AstroTurf was born. It was a scientific and industrial product that complemented the scientific and industrial shadow of the time. And what was once a solution to a specific problem became a cost-effective standard for parks and stadiums across the entire country. The 1970 World Series became the first to be played on AstroTurf, as the Reds were now using it in their Riverfront Stadium. In 1974, the Super Bowl was played on AstroTurf for the first time. When the Phillies and Royals faced off in 1980, it marked the first time every game of a World Series was played on artificial turf. It became a staple across community and school fields. The Brady Bunch had it in their backyard. On the hard surface, baseball became a game of speed. The infielders played back further than ever to accommodate for the velocity and the exaggerated bounce of the ball. The renaissance of classic-style parks in the 1990s began the demise of AstroTurf, and today only two clubs still play on the surface. The Blue Jays are looking to switch to natural grass soon, 
and the rays are looking to move all together. Before long, the AstroTurf era might officially be over in baseball, but it and its iterations will still live on football fields and municipal soccer pitches. And as players continue to complain about the toilet takes on their knees, they can thank those cranky outfielders in Houston who insisted on seeing the ball and not being rained on indoors. It may seem out of the realm of possibility, considering how it's an $18 billion business now, but in the mid-1960s, coffee consumption was at an all-time low. The problem stemmed from the fact that coffee wasn't really easy to make. Home machines were expensive, complicated, and required daily cleaning. The most efficient way to make coffee was to use the vastly inferior percolator. The percolator is fairly easy to use, but flawed in its design. To make good coffee, the water needs to be a shade under boiling temperature and passed through the grounds only once. The percolator sacrificed all of this for simplicity. To percolate coffee, you filled the pot with water and put the grounds in a basket at the top. The pot goes on the stove, and when the water begins to boil, it rises to the top and falls through the grounds. This constant reboiling of water is what gave the percolator its distinctive sound. But it led to pretty terrible coffee. That's where Vincent Morota comes in. Morota was actually a talented baseball player himself. He played college ball at Mount Union and was signed by the St. Louis Cardinals. But Morota had to go to war during World War II, and when he returned he entered the business world. Morota was aware of the coffee crisis and looked to make a move into that world by bringing tasty and convenient coffee back to the home. Inspired by the drip machines popping up in restaurants, he invented a miniaturized version for the home kitchen. It used hot but not boiling water and dripped it only once over the grounds. And just like that, Mr. Coffee was born. And this change to this. Mm, So much better. Moroda had a quality product, but still faced an uphill battle. He had to convince percolator users to switch to drip coffee makers and non-coffee drinkers to give the beverage another try. He needed exposure. He needed a spokesperson. And so in his infinite wisdom, Morota called his baseball hero, Joe DiMaggio. He got DiMaggio's number from a mutual acquaintance and called him up. As it happened, DiMaggio had just won a Mr. Coffee in a golf tournament, but he still wasn't really that interested. He politely declined Morota's offer. But Morota would not take no for an answer. The very next day, he hopped on a plane from his hometown in Cleveland to DiMaggio's San Francisco. He phoned DiMaggio again. DiMaggio agreed to meet for lunch this time, and Morota tried the pitch again. And this time, for whatever reason, it stuck. Joe DiMaggio agreed to be the face of Mr. Coffee. And he would for almost 15 years, appearing in numerous commercials for the coffee maker. 
For the special people on your gift list, giving Mr. Coffee is the delicious way to say Merry Christmas. Everyone would love to have Mr. Coffee. It's America's number one coffee maker. Mr. Coffee with Coffee Saver brews delicious coffee fast, and it saves coffee, too. When you give Mr. Coffee for Christmas, every delicious cup will be a reminder of your thoughtfulness for years to come. This Christmas, give Mr. Coffee. It's a little bit better day, America, since Mr. Coffee came along. Mr. Coffee has changed the way America makes coffee. Marota's plan worked. Mr. Coffees and their imitators made their way back into homes. People began making coffee again. And this, at least to certain underrested podcast hosts, might be more important than any hit streak. And brews it faster than any other coffee maker. You make coffee better than coffee was. And it's only because Mr. Coffee came along. There's only one Mr. Coffee. Thanks, Joe. Stealing Home is written, hosted, produced, and scored by me, David Temple, and presented by the Hardball Times. For tremendous baseball writing every weekday, go to thehardballtimes.com. You can find show notes for this episode and all past episodes by visiting stealinghome.org. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stealinghomeradio. And I can be found on Twitter at David G. Temple. Happy opening day, everybody. We'll see you next time on Stealing Home.